Welcome to the Weekly Review. This is Roman. We're here at Mutiny Radio here in the Mission District in San Francisco. It is Friday, June 10th already, 2016. And I have a great show for everyone here today. Uh, so earlier this morning, I spoke with John Neffel, who is a journalist and co-host of Radio Dispatch out in New York. And uh, so we talk a lot about a lot of interesting things happening. That's very vague, I know. Um, so John had written an article that's in the Village Voice uh, this past week about some American folks who are heading over to Syria to help with the leftist, because uh, the, the Kurdish militia is one way of, uh, I guess, to... I don't know. How do we how do we label things, I guess, is a, is a question. Anyway, long story short, uh, there's a People's Protection Units, which is the, the name, also known as the YPG, uh, which is in the, it's, it's a Kurdish militia in northern Syria. So we talk about that. We also talk about Guantanamo. We talk about mistreatment of the press, uh, which John has experienced uh, starting off with Occupy. And then also speaking about our friends of his in Ferguson. So uh, that'll be happening. Uh, already recorded the conversation, and that will be played later on in the show, probably around 1 p.m. here. So stay tuned for that. It was a really great conversation and I learned quite a bit. So please stick around for that. Starting off the show, I guess I used my usual rant. What to rant about? Hmm. If only there's something that happened on Tuesday that was really frustrating. The good thing is I feel like I am I am naive and I am optimistic and then I'm also cynical. So I don't have too much faith in the voting process and I still vote anyway. I don't know if that makes me a hypocrite or just the eh, might as well do it. Uh, I'd rather do it uh, than not do it. Do it and then also maybe not to put too much stock into it. So apparently there's still at least 2 million votes in California that have not been counted. Um, there were quite a few reports uh, from folks in Oakland, for instance, of not having their votes counted. Um, so we'll see what happens with that. And that's, of course, been a it's been a long time uh, that, you know, the vote there's been uh, voter suppression and votes haven't been counted. So how can we really consider it to be a, a fair and democratic process if everyone's voices aren't heard. And then, of course, there's also the folks in prison, for instance. There are some folks with a record who can vote, and then also some folks who can't. And then there's folks who do go out and vote, and their votes are just not counted at all because of who they vote for. Or they're given provisional ballots, and there's a lot of... Uh, it's it's not fair. That's what my point is. Anyway, opened up the, the show with a song called Electioneering by Radiohead. I, I don't think they needed any press or any coverage at all but love that song and of course just the idea of saying anything to get a vote and then i had forgotten for a moment i was like went to radiohead for a while and i'd forgotten for a while that they did have a they had an, a whole album called hail to the thief which was about uh bush and cheney stealing the election uh happened a couple times uh, but it's like i feel just having grown up in being in the states for most of it certainly during those those eight years ugh. Um, how ashamed I feel to have been a citizen at that time. And I mean, there was, there was a lot of folks who took to the streets. There, there are folks who protested and still it wasn't quite enough to change what, uh, what had happened, what was happening. And this idea of, you know, folks taking power, whether they're elected or not is quite disturbing. And, even more disturbing are the folks who don't recognize that it's happening. And my Facebook feed, it's like, I feel the need to go off entirely sometimes. And then it's like, Oh, then I'd end up disconnecting and that's not good. Um, but I, I feel it's a really, it's really tricky because I do have, there are folks, friends with folks who are 
Hillary Clinton supporters, and then I have many, many friends who have, there's memes going around with a picture of George Clinton saying, this is the only Clinton I support, and I, of course, like that, and I agree with that. And there's also, oh, just to get into it, and it's it's tricky because I feel most people really, at the end of the day, we all really want the same things, which is uh, just to be safe and to have a roof over our heads and to have everyone uh, be taken care of. And I don't think that's too much to ask for. However, there are folks who decide to get into politics with that idea of like, oh, yeah, I'm going to help people. And then in the end, it ends up being uh, greed plays a part and people ego plays a part and people end up making a lot of concessions. People make a lot of compromises, which end up not helping the people at all. So it's it's very easy to be cynical about it. And I, of course, I do not trust Hillary Clinton. I won't get it. Eh, it's, you know, and then folks are in it. And then there's a, and I get, yeah, like my whole thing is, yeah, I would, I would fucking, okay. First of all, in my ideal, in my ideal world, if we can have an ideal world, might as well just reach for the stars, right? Uh, to not even have any governments at all and to be completely, you know, self-governing and everyone takes care of each other. We don't need to elect people. We don't need to, that's in an ideal situation. We don't have to have elections because everything can get taken care of. And I realize that might not make a lot of sense. It might sound kind of chaotic. Uh, however, things are kind of fucked up right now as they are. That being said, uh, people have been very much like, oh, first female president. And if you know me, I I think women are great. I would love a female president if that person was someone whose policies I agreed with. But I can't vote for someone just because they are female. That doesn't sit well with me. I feel like that's really problematic. And I recognize how great that would be to have a female president. It would have to be someone I agree with, though. So that's kind of where I stand with it. And I'm not a not a fan of Hillary Clinton. And I'll get into some articles today. And again, it, it gets really d- divisive. And I've seen so many. There's like a lot of there's like some always anti-Bernie and I get that it's it's politics and it's people end up getting really sensitive about it and it's really oh man have I already brought myself down it's 12:10 and I'm already just feeling kind of it's ugh. even on election day on, on last Tuesday I could feel the energy and if folks who are sensitive to energy is as I am there's a lot of us out there I can just feel like the it's so much time and money and effort is put into this like one you know this one thing and there have been a lot of arguments that it's like well if we were all to do this like locally and with our when our communities put that much time and energy and effort into creating the world that we want to that we want to have then the elections wouldn't necessarily hold so much power over us and i feel like that's a real problem is that there's an idea oh people cast their vote and then they kind of walk away and we need to find ways for folks to take part in what's happening um, not just by voting. I think I mentioned something like that similarly last week, but since Tuesday, and there are some here in San Francisco, there are some measures that passed. It looked like B didn't, or B did pass, unfortunately, and we really wanted B to not pass because uh, there was going to be no transparency with how the money was spent in the Parks and Rec uh, department. And the guest we had on last week, Kathy Howard, talked about that a lot. So that was a disappointment. <laughs> and that's the thing, too. It's like there's that part of me that like I recognize that the system is incredibly flawed and not fair. 
and then there's still that part of me like kind of like this childlike innocence that still is like well maybe something good will happen or maybe the person that i vote for will be elected which very rarely happens sometimes it does sometimes but very rarely i'm pretty much oftentimes voting for green party candidates and folks who are on the much more progressive end of things and unfortunately they do not have the capital to really promote themselves as much as other candidates and therefore they don't receive as much attention i'm still trying to tell people who jill stein is <laughs> that's something else that's that's been happening um and really just seeing how money plays into everything i heard an interesting story on npr which i recognize is also not you know every every everything is biased in its own way um, but it's about ellie brandeis who was on the supreme court and how he was very much arguing for that uh, money cannot represent people this is like back in the day like 100 years ago and uh, those arguments kind of he was ahead of his time in that regard and seeing what's happened now with citizens united and how corporations have say and sway over people how how can we allow that to happen how has that been allowed to happen and just seeing that where but, but the uh, capitalism cannot sustain itself and it's falling apart so that's an optimistic thing it's just a matter of what we what we do with not the crumbs i really thought it was going to be a positive show today i really did honestly maybe it'll get there it will get there i do have some positive news stories um some good things that have happened so maybe i'll start off with that i need to find them though i do need to find them nope that one's kind of huh. Uh, nope, that one, no, not so negative. No, a little bit negative. Uh, SF, no, that one's also a bit negative. Oh, here's a good one. I'll start off with sports because uh, my show, if you don't know, I'm an avid sports fan. That's not entirely untrue. I grew up being really into sports, big basketball fan. Um, grew up in, outside of Chicago, I was a big Bulls fan. So my main thing, my main issue, I get that people are really, it brings people together, which is awesome. There's a lot of problems, though, with how much money and attention and media goes into professional sports and then also how some of the athletes are treated and just it's. Ugh. Yeah. So here's something positive, a positive news story. And this comes from Think Progress. And this is a uh, and the NFL. I was never really that into football, of all the professional sports. That was probably my least favorite. But uh, here's something awesome. NFL star Richard Sherman, stop making taxpayers pay for billionaire stadiums. Common sense. And it's awesome that someone who is part of the NFL is speaking up about that and bringing attention to that, which is awesome. And this article is written by Lindsey Gibbs, and this came out uh, yesterday, uh, June 9th. Richard Sherman for president? Question mark. Don't laugh before you hear his plan to tackle the deficit. Talking to John Clayton on 710 ESPN Seattle, the Stanford graduate and Seattle Seahawks cornerback said that if he was elected to the White House, he would focus on getting America out of debt. I'd get us out of this deficit, Sherman said. I'd stop spending billions of taxpayer dollars on stadiums and probably get us out of debt and maybe make the billionaires who actually benefit from the stadiums pay for them. That kind of seems like a system that would work for me. Sherman might have been mostly kidding when talking about a presidential run, but the ridiculousness of stadium financing is no laughing matter. Oh, I guess this article will get depressing. Meh. Okay. According to an analysis from the Public-Private Partnerships for Major League Sports Facilities, $12 billion in public funds were used for 51 new sports facilities between 2001 and 2010. Think Progress previously offered suggestions for what could be done with that money, such as finance all subsidies for public school lunches for an entire year, provide year-long methadone maintenance for over 2.5 million drug addicts, or fund a preschool education for every three- and four-year-old under the poverty line. 
As Deadspin reported, the $430 million security link field, the home of the Seahawks, was paid for with a $300 million with $300 million in taxpayer money, despite the fact that team owner Paul Allen is the 45th richest man in the world. Seattle taxpayers are on the hook for the stadium through 2021. Very few stadiums buck this trend, although the new home for the Los Angeles Rams, I didn't realize they were moving back to Los Angeles, congratulations, uh, is pretty uh, taxpayer-friendly compared to the rest. It is said to cost about $3 billion, but will only uh, be receiving $180 million in sales tax kickbacks. President Barack Obama tried to solve this problem, but his budget proposal last year, which included a repeal of the tax exemption for bonds that finance these arenas, didn't pass through Congress. Uh. So, while it's unlikely that Sherman could accomplish what Obama couldn't, and needless to say, fixing this loophole wouldn't single-handedly solve the deficit, it's nice to see Sherman wading his toe in the political sphere. It's rare for active players to get anywhere near politics. So far, the most famous football player to wade into the political arena is Tom Brady. <laughs> you can tell from my tone how I feel about him. Uh, who says he is good friends with Donald Trump? See, I didn't even finish the sentence, and I just knew it was not going to end well. But won't go beyond that. He doesn't fucking need to. We don't need to hear about him. Goodbye. And it's even more rare for a player to speak out against something that benefits the man who writes his checks. For the record, Sherman said he would run as a member of the Independent Party. His slogan, make America the place you want to raise your kids. Uh, and then the article says he might need to make it more pithy, but it certainly got the right sentiment. Sentiment. So there we go. That's something positive. That's really cool. And um, folks who are speaking up. Um, more power to you. That's great. That's awesome. And that makes me very happy. I'm going to continue on with another positive news story. Oh, I've got a couple here. So I'll go to another one that's on the more positive side of things. And then we'll, we'll delve into the, oh, that's happening section, which is the majority of the show, unfortunately. But, you know, we talk about it and then process it. And uh, at the end of the day, it doesn't feel so bad just recognizing what's happening and being aware of it and focusing on what we can do to change uh, what's, what's in place. Here's something that's ch changing what's in place, which is good. It's long overdue, but pretty awesome. This is from the SFist. Airbnb dealt massive blow in San Francisco as soups vote to fine company for turning blind eye to scofflaw hosts. And this was written by Eve Beatty, and this came out on June 8th. In a move that surprised many on Tuesday, San Francisco's Board of Supervisors approved legislation that hit amateur hotelier platforms in their soft and tender parts, and even San Francisco's Airbnb-friendly mayor is powerless to stop its enforcement. Though companies like Airbnb, VRBO, and the like are notoriously non-transparent regarding data on their hosts, it's estimated that over a fifth of the revenue Airbnb makes in San Francisco comes from listings that violate San Francisco law. The company itself admitted in early April that around 20% of its San Francisco properties were posted by people who were listing multiple units, which is against SF laws. But though the company vowed to crack down on scoff laws, that wasn't enough for supervisors David Campos and Aaron Peskin, who, a few weeks after Airbnb's admission, proposed legislation fining the company as much as $1,000 per day per every rental unit that had not been registered with the city, as has been required for the past year. 
As the legislation gathered support earlier this month, word from the mayor, word from the mayor Ed Lee's office seemed to suggest that he might veto the law. Lee, who has opposed attempts to regulate Airbnb and others in its industry in the past, will consider the legislation when it reaches his desk, a mayoral spokesperson said, but warned that it's important to remember that voters rejected this and other short-term rental restrictions just last year. As it turns out, Lee won't have to consider anything, though. On Tuesday, the full board of soups unanimously passed legislation 10 to 0. It was a somewhat surprising move, 48 Hills reported, with even Scott Wiener, who has always sided with Airbnb in the past, voting in favor after asking for an amendment calling for SF's Office of Short-Term Rental Enforcement to make it easier for hosts to register. Soup Mark Farrell recused himself from the vote, the ex reports, citing business interests he has with the short-term rental industry. With 10 votes in favor of the legislation, it has a veto-proof majority, and it can't be blocked by Lee. But that doesn't stop his spokesperson from crankily telling SFists that the mayor continues to be concerned about how this new law will stand up to a legal challenge. However, he supports streamlining the process to make it easier for hosts to register and comply with the law. According to Airbnb's own records, in early April, there were 9,500 listings for short-term rentals in San Francisco, listed by 7,046 unique hosts. At that same time, there were only 1,647 registration applications from all users of short-term rental platforms, making as many as 75% of Airbnb's SF listings in violation of this new law. According to a San Francisco budget analyst's report from May of last year, between 925 and 1,960 of San Francisco's residential units are kept vacant by owners who instead rent them out full-time on Airbnb. Fuck you. That was my comment. Ugh. In fact, Socket Site reports an estimated 26.1% of listings for unhosted stays appear to have been rented for more than 90 nights a year, with a median of 180 nights, which violates the city's 90-night cap. So you can see why Airbnb might be freaking out, as this law means fines that Socket Site believes could theoretically total over $5 million a day. Given that Business Insider reported in December that the company isn't yet turning a profit, any move to cut their business must be very upsetting for them. And upset they were in a statement sent following the vote. An estimated 1,200 San Franciscans avoided foreclosure or eviction by hosting on Airbnb, and this legally questionable proposal puts their housing at risk without offering any real solutions to fix the complex process. The board acknowledged that the registration system is broken, and in order to help people to be able to stay in their homes, the city needs to fix it. We hope the board will act to fix this broken registration system. We are considering all options to stand up for our community and keep fighting for real reform. The Office of San Francisco City Attorney, however, doesn't seem worried about these options. Despite a letter sent to the city by tech lobbying group Cal Innovates that claims that the new law that that the law 
would violate the Communications Decency Act, which seeks to protect platforms that host online content. Deputy City Attorney John Givener says that this ordinance does not regulate the content of any posted information on the website of a hosting platform. Rather, it regulates the business activities of the hosting platforms. It extends the type of information they must collect in order to engage in booking services and doesn't regulate the content of the website. According to the X, the new law requires short-term rentals websites to post registration numbers on listings or email the number and name of the host to the Office of Short-Term Rentals. If the agents with the city see rentals that appear not to be registered on platforms like Airbnb, the listing services would be required to respond with details about those properties within one business day or face fines, the Crown reports, with the fine revenue going towards San Francisco's affordable housing efforts. The new law also requires that the Office of Short-Term Rentals provide quarterly reports on its enforcement. The legislation will take effect, reports the X, in about 30 days. So, if you're an as-yet-unregistered host, better get cracking. So, that is something positive. Uh, there was uh, there were some bills that were kind of going around for a while trying to get Airbnb hosts to be held accountable, since there are these empty units and the folks are pretty much just having property and renting them out and not having people live there is really a problem when there seems to be a lack of housing here in San Francisco. So it's great that the company or folks who use it will now be held accountable, hopefully. So that's something positive. And also the fact that the unanimously, the Board of Supervisors all voted on it, voted yes on it, except for Mark Farrell. That's pretty great news. So moving along, I'll do one more story and then I'll take another music break. Um, uh, there's, yeah, there's, there's quite a bit that's, that's troubling and there's, uh, so, uh, how to even, how to even get into this? So my, many folks know about the, there's a case, um, Emily Doe, uh, who refuses, uh, to let her, her name out there, um, is a woman who was raped, um, by the, at Stanford and, the person who raped her, uh, the rapist, was given a very, oh, I should say trigger warning before the show and trigger warning definitely before this uh, this segment. Um, the person who is a rapist uh, comes from a very privileged background and the judge gave him a very light sentence and um, had he not had this background, there's it's quite apparent that he would be given a different sentence and the judge seemed to be really victim blaming and not to give a very fair sentence at all. And there has been a lot of backlash. Thankfully people have spoken up just to say how unfair this is and how unjust this is. And also the, even like it's like so just infuriating and unjust in so many that, that, that this action happened in the first place is sickening and then have it to go through a court of law and then to have the judge almost kind of like side with the rapist is fucking disgusting. However, there's a positive spin on this. And that seems like really how to, that's where we're going with this one. And this is that there's been so much, um, the person who experienced the assault wrote a very um, eloquent and long and powerful poignant piece about her experience. And that has, uh, gained some a lot of attention and so folks have called for the judge who ruled in this case 
to uh, be dismissed. And there's been an, uh, like a petition that's been going around, and um, a lot of folks have been become aware of what's just his his practices. And it seems like this is something that's kind of regular for him taking the side of athletes who are accused of raping people, and that's pretty fucking gross for a judge. It's gross for anyone. It's gross for anyone. And then when you have someone, that's again, my the theme of the show overall and a theme of my life, the thing I probably despise most are people in positions of authority who abuse their power and who harm people. And uh, that's exactly what this what this judge has done. And folks have heard about it, though, and they're standing up against him. There's also was a hex that was put on um, both the rapist and his father who wrote this really gross letter defending his son. And the judge... And so now it looks like jurors are refusing to serve under this judge. So that is pretty um, incredible and awesome that that's happening. And folks are kind of speaking out saying, no, this whole, the whole system, we all know, I'll, I'll just say we all, many, many of us know the system's corrupt as fuck. And for people to, to step up and to say, no, we're not going to even take a part in this because these people are problematic, I think is really powerful and incredible. And that's why this article in this section is going to be somewhat positive is because people are standing up and saying, we're not going to be complicit in this. We're not going to agree to go along with this. So this article comes from the Mercury News. And um, this came out um, the 9th. That was yesterday. And it's written by Tracy Kaplan, and the title is Brock Turner Case Fallout. Prospective jurors refuse to serve under judge. Palo Alto. At least 10 prospective jurors who oppose Judge Aaron Persky's decision to spare former Stanford swimmer Brock Turner prison for a sex crime refused this week to serve on a jury in an unrelated case he is handling. I can't be here. I'm so upset, one juror told the judge while the lawyers were picking the jury in the misdemeanor receiving stolen property case, according to multiple sources. Another prospective juror stood up and said, I can't believe what you did, referring to the six-month county jail sentence Persky handed to Turner, who was convicted of sexually assaulting an unconscious, intoxicated woman last year outside a Stanford University fraternity party. In each case, the judge said, I understand, thanked the prospective juror, and excused her or him from duty. Turner faced at least two years in state prison until the judge followed a probation report recommendation and found grounds to sentence him to county jail and three years probation instead. Persky cited 20-year-old Turner's youth and his lack of a criminal record as unusual circumstances uh, warranting leniency. The sentence has sparked worldwide outrage, fueled by social media and the victim's impassioned 12-page statement. A Stanford law professor and friend of the victim's family, Michelle Dauber, has mounted a campaign to recall Persky. Persky supporters said Thursday that some of the jurors' protest statements may well have been genuine, but others may have been prompted by a desire to get out of jury duty. However, the tactic could prove more problematic if it spreads because it could prolong the jury selection process, as it did in this trial. Okay, so that's a pretty short article. Um, just the idea, though, that folks are speaking up about it, and it's it's been brought to people's attention instead of going along with it, I think, and voicing their their discontent with it, I think, is really powerful. And also, again, there is a petition that's there's like hundreds of thousands of signatures so far. Um, we've posted that on the re- weekly review webpage, which you can find at facebook.com slash weekly rev. So we're going to take a music break and then we will, um, head back with some more stories. Um, we'll see how they go. And around 1 PM we'll be, I'll be playing the interview with John Neffel. So definitely stay tuned for that. So this song kind of goes out to Brock Turner and, uh, people who defend rapists and rapists all together. And this song is called fuck you by Dean Johnson and the weenies. 
at me when I look back at you I don't like what I see your lack of character shows I hate your clothes and you've got something disgusting hanging out of your nose Welcome back to the Weekly Review. That was Dean Johnson and the Weenies. And again, there's that line about fuck Mary Tyler Moore. We, we won't go into that necessarily. I think it's a joke. Anyway, that's kind of my sentiment. And I'm going to read a little bit more. Uh, this kind of continues on with the story. Uh, or just speaking about, so if you haven't, I feel like most folks are pretty informed with what's been happening, um, but just talk a little bit more. And a lot of this, the, the actions were pretty reprehensible. And on top of that, it's how this case was handled in the quote unquote justice system, which is obviously not that just. So Democracy Now! Um, talks a little bit about this. And I'm going to read a bit because there is uh, an activist in the Black Lives Matter movement who was arrested and she was face she's facing four years in jail 
she's facing four years in jail while this rapist uh, got six months. So Democracy Now! has a little bit of a story on that, which I think is really important to read because it kind of uh, just talks about why the, the whole situation is just so incredibly problematic and just how unjust people, how unfairly people are treated uh, based on their bodies when they encounter the, the justice system and how it's it's just it's rigged. It's just completely rigged and unfair. A lot of things, and a lot of things are. So this comes from Democracy Now! and this is from June 7th. Uh, Why did Black Lives Matter activists face four years in jail while Stanford rapist gets six months? And um, so there's an update to the story. And then after the, the broadcast, which uh, talked about the story, uh, Jasmine Richards, who is the activist from Black Lives Matter, was sentenced to 90 days in jail with 18 days served and three years on probation. And the article begins, in California, Black Lives Matter activist Jasmine Richards faces up to four years in prison at her sentencing today after she was convicted of a rarely used statute in California law known up until recently as felony lynching. Police accused her of trying to de-arrest someone during a peace march in Pasadena last August. The arrest and jailing of a young black woman activist on charges of felony lynching has sparked a firestorm of protest while supporters vowing to pack the court today uh, with supporters vowing to pack the court today meanwhile in another california case a judge sentenced white former stanford university swimmer brock allen turner to six months in jail after he was convicted of three felony counts of sexual assault uh, and they say uh, we get reaction from california senate president pro tem, uh, pro tem- uh, Kevin DeLeon and Los Angeles City Council member Gil Cedillo, uh, you started your show talking about someone from Stanford who rapes a woman and gets six months, and then you've got a woman who is part of the Black Lives Matter movement who is trying to bring forth the challenges that face us in America around racism and racial discrimination, and she's participating, trying to exercise her First Amendment rights, and she's going to be given four years, Cedillo uh, says. Something's wrong with that picture. So I encourage folks to check out this article. It's Again, it's on Democracy Now!, and there's a video, and there's a transcript, and you can check that out. And the title again is Why Did Black Lives Matter Activists Face Four Years in Jail While Stanford Rapist Gets Six Months? Oh, so moving along to, uh, oh man, uh, just how the justice system is, is unjust and the law is not fair by any means. There's an article, um, I was, uh, on the next round of set yesterday for, uh, a, TV shoot, which was which was cool, and um, my my character pedestrian. I was given a, a prop, which was a newspaper, which was perfect because I like newspapers and I like to read. And it was an SF Weekly, and inside I found this article, which I thought was really important to read, and it kind of continues on with the uh, the previous article, just in another another way of arguing that the law is unfair and racist. And this is uh, from June first, and it was written by Chris Roberts, and it's Weeds Race War Continues. Uh, One of the chief arguments against legalizing cannabis in California is that legalization is not needed. In 2010, then-Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger signed a bill decriminalizing up to an ounce of cannabis for all adults, no medical cannabis recommendation from a physician required. Possessing under an ounce is punishable by a citation, which carries a fine of no more than $100 plus fees, or a less serious offense than blowing a stop sign on a bicycle. Thanks to this, misdemeanor marijuana arrests nearly vanished in the state, tumbling by almost 
almost 90 percent from 2009 to 2011. Nobody really goes to jail anymore just for a little bit of weed, this argument goes. Both the police and prison guard associations, as well as self-appointed legalization purists, have seized upon this truism. For the cops holding on to prohibition, the claim, printed in the Los Angeles Times as fact, is that weed is already legal thanks to Arnold's decrim bill. For the purists, the Adult Use of Marijuana Act, which gives adults free reign to have up to an ounce of cannabis in their possession and six plants at home, as well as more of both if they have a medical recommendation, does not go far enough and therefore must be opposed. After all, most people who go to jail for simple possession of drugs are using harder stuff. Meth, cocaine, heroin, prescription pills. A real victory in the war on drugs would be Portugal-style total decriminalization. Anything less is capitulation. Both lines of logic are long are <laughs> both lines of logic are wrong. The undeniable racial disparities in how pot is policed are continuing, a new study shows, and as always, police are policing black and brown people much more stringently than whites. Data crunched by the American Civil Liberties Union and the Drug Policy Alliance shows that Latinos and African Americans are ticketed for cannabis possession at rates exceeding whites, and black people are ticketed the most. The group analyzed citation data from Los Angeles and Fresno. In both cities, they found black people receive marijuana possession infractions at nearly four times the rate as whites. What's more, these penalties are most often assessed on youth. In LA, the average person ticketed for marijuana is under 27. In Fresno, he or she is under 29. The data shows that even at the level of infractions, California law enforcement are incapable of applying the law equally across racial lines, Alice Huffman, president of the California NAACP, said in a statement released Tuesday. And, according to researchers, the situation in these two cities is likely the same across the state. It's certainly the case with felony and misdemeanor arrests. Over half of the 13,300 people arrested for marijuana felonies were black or brown, and almost 4,000 of the 6,411 misdemeanor marijuana arrestees, or almost two-thirds, were people of color. It's not that police do not have the memo, it's that the memo is being stomped on, shredded, and then set on fire. In San Francisco, at least, we enjoy some privilege. Data from citations given here are not immediately available, but according to arrest statistics at the State Department of Justice, San Francisco police appear to be winding down the war. In 2014, the most recent year for which data is available, police made 162 felony marijuana arrests. Cannabis crimes are clearly less and less of a priority for local police. Those 162 arrests are a small percentage of the 1,050 felony drug arrests, which, it, which is itself a small part of 7,709 arrests for all serious crimes. We're lucky to have a police force that's moved on from cannabis and a district attorney who has publicly said time and again the drug war has failed and appears to be back and appears to be backing up all the talk with actions, or lack thereof. In Oakland, voters passed a ballot measure supposedly instructing police to make cannabis the lowest priority, yet the same racial bias problems persist. According to the most recent report presented to Oakland's Cannabis Regulatory Commission, 94% of the people arrested or cited for cannabis violations or crimes in that city were people of color. That's bad enough, but somehow black people are also 78% of the people arrested for, for possession with intent to distribute, which is still a serious felony crime.
In their defense, police say that they are merely responding to calls for service or that the cannabis citation or arrest came on top of a more serious crime. For example, a domestic violence suspect also had a joint in his pocket. This is almost impossible to corroborate, but raises the question, if someone is committing a more serious crime, why ring them up for cannabis at all? The answer, because they can. And citations should not be dismissed as a pittance. The cost for a cannabis citation, remember, is $100 plus fees. According to the DPA, the true cost can rise to several hundred dollars after those fees are added. That's a lot of money for a student or someone working minimum wage. If a ticket and if a ticket goes unpaid or if you skip out on a court date, a bench warrant can be issued. All for weed. The war isn't over, and it's still a war on people of color, just as the architects of cannabis prohibition intended in the first place. Whew. So again, you can see that article. I read the article um, on SF Weekly, and it was written by Chris Roberts. And I heard something similar was happening also in Colorado as well. So even in a place, in a state where it's fully legalized, there still have been arrests based on uh, just racist arrests made there so that's not just happening here in california and one would hope that uh, if it becomes fully one would assume that if it becomes fully decriminalized there would just be no need at all for any kind of law enforcement to have any say in what people are doing um, whether or not they want to share it or sell it or not so ugh, that's yes continuing on with that um, we have a few more stories, and then at 1 p.m. we'll be playing uh, the interview with John Neffel. So uh, I'm going to read the uh, petition that's on color, colorofchange.org, which is uh, Tell Governor Brown, Pardon Jasmine, Abdullah Richards. And you, again, you can see this at colorofchange.org. On Tuesday, June 7th, 2016, Judge Elaine Liu decided to sentence Jasmine Abdullah Richards, a Pasadena Black Lives Matter leader, to 90 days in jail and a three-year three years probation following her persecution by L.A. District Attorney Jackie Lacey and the Pasadena Police Department for attempted lynching. This unjust sentencing has made a mockery of our justice system and sends a chilling message to social justice advocates across the country. We must continue the fight. Our fight for Jasmine Abdullah Richards' freedom is now in the hands of Governor Jerry Brown, who has the executive power to right Judge Liu and District Attorney Lacey's wrongdoing. Brown has a track record of using his pardon powers liberally. During his terms as governor, as governor, he pardoned hundreds of people. With enough public pressure, we can make him do the same for Jasmine and send a strong message to, to prosecutors who think they can use their power to silence protest. We flew to Pasadena on June 7th to stand with Black Lives Matter, 18 million rising, and Democracy for America and other Jasmine supporters to deliver over 80,000 signatures from Color of Change. We chanted, I believe that we will win. In a, and in a way we did. Jasmine could have received as much as four years in prison, but with time served, she will be home in about two and a half months. Still, without a pardon, Jasmine will be regulated to second-class citizenship as a convicted felon. According to those in the courtroom, the judge was visibly stunned by the number of petitions when Jasmine's lawyer presented them and indicated she was inclined not to seek jail time before eventually bending to the insistence of the prosecutor. <clears throat> It was a powerful action, but our efforts must not stop until Jasmine is free and prosecutors understand that we won't that we won't stand by while they target movement leaders. Following Jasmine's sentencing, Black Lives Matter co-founder 
Uh, Patrice Can uh, Con Calores stated, "Sentencing decisions like this one, along with last week's light sentence for a Stanford athlete convicted of rape, show all too clearly that there are different, if unspoken, rules in our country's justice system, depending on one's race, gender, and class. We will continue to fight back to abolish the oppressive, unwritten rules for sentencing in this country. Join us in calling for Governor Jerry Brown to pardon Jasmine Abdullah Richard's sentence." Dear Governor Brown, I am writing you to ask that you pardon Black Lives Matter activist Jasmine Abdullah Richards. On Tuesday, Judge Elaine Liu sentenced Jasmine Abdullah Richards to 90 days in jail and three years probation following her prosecution by L.A. District Attorney Jackie Lacey and the Pasadena Police Department on attempted lynching charges. L.A. District Attorney Jackie Lacey and the Pasadena Police Department were trivialized and uh, have trivialized an anti-lynching law meant to protect black communities, and now Judge Liu validated that persecution by allowing them to use her courtroom as a tool to silence Richards and intimidate other black activists. You have the executive power to write Judge Liu and District Attorney Lacey's wrongdoing. We are asking that, that uh, we put justice, we're asking we are asking that put justice ahead of politics and pardon Jasmine Abdullah Richards. Sincerely, and you can add your name. So again, you can find find this petition and sign your name and share it at colorofchange.org. Oh, okay. Moving along. Oh, yes. Okay. So coming up next. Oh, all right. We'll go to a story that's a little bit more, uh, uh, I don't know. We'll see. So this is from uh, Boston. This is WCVB, and this is a positive story. Cambridge votes to change Columbus Day to Indigenous Peoples Day. Uh, the counselor says Columbus was a war criminal, didn't discover anything. Amen. And this came out on June 7th. The city council voted unanimously Monday night to rename the October... Oh, we have a caller on the line. We'll get that. Hello, Mutiny Radio. Um, yeah, I, I wanted to comment on what you guys were just expounding on. Is um, someone available to talk to me? Uh, sure, yeah, you're on the air. Oh, I'm on the air? Yeah. Great. Um, could you turn it down, probation officer, please? Yeah, my band's over there. But, yeah, I, I was tuning in, and this is the guy that's not trying to be funny because I heard you saying some real positive stuff. And It's interesting. You sound like Jermaine. It's amazing. You know why I sound like Jermaine? For no reason. No, because I am Jermaine. Hi, Jermaine. Thanks for calling in. Not a problem. I wanted to actually come um, to the show today, but my parole um, officer is here, and she's trying to get me to play her music, and it really sucks. So I asked her, could I call in for a second and listen to the show? And, you know, as always, you were really informative, and um, I didn't know that. And, of course, we're going to have to highlight it on the Broke is Dopest because, you know, that's what I say all the time as far as, of course, there's double standards in this country. Look at the political climate, you know. Look how Donald Trump now has divided the country where his own, you know, you've never seen that phenomenon. It's kind of like hate against the rational people. But just want to call in and uh, show you some love, let you know, you know what I'm saying, I appreciate what you do because I just heard you get a little frustrated on the phone. And I was like, welcome to my world, bro. Welcome to my world. Oh, yeah. You know, ab- above all of it, though, you, they still only represent the bad people that do bad stuff. 
You feel me? Those are bad cops. You know, that was a bad judge. That was a bad decision. You know, but that's the tip of the iceberg when it comes to, you know, justice and injustice. Just look at the death row. Just look at the last person that was executed, the last woman that was executed, the ethnicity of, you know, the majority of the people that they killed. Yeah. It's always like that. Yeah. You You pointed out all the time, you know, fight the power, that be. Yeah. Um, In this case, it's the racist system that perpetuates, you know what I'm saying, um, white supremacy. Yeah. They're trying to hold on to the last vestiges of America, and it's crazy because if America was ever going to come to its fruition and the wishes of its founding fathers, then, you know, everybody would really have the, the right to pursue, you know, liberty and the other stuff that they said you could do. But... I did like the Elizabeth Warren. Did you did you hear hear her speech? I, I heard and she was uh, calling out Trump, which was wonderful. Oh my God, it was amazing. We got to get some clips of that for the show. And then Barack did a stand up on him last night. Oh, it was like amazing. Oh, cool. I didn't like hear about that. He's not the only Donald Trump hater. <laughs> I think there's a lot of Donald Trump haters out there. Yeah, there's a lot of Donald Trump supporters also, which is the problem because if it was him, Donald Trump and himself. Just like, you know, I was checking out the news earlier. They say 14 million people, you know, like Mitch McConnell says, he's not going to try to take the nomination away from him because 14 million Americans voted. I don't know the amount of eligible ones, but I do know that won't be enough in the general election to get him nominated. And I said that when he first got in, like, they're... He's too much of a, a loose cannon and an idiot. You've never seen people in your own party like, no, I won't wear his T-shirts. I won't vote for him, you know. So maybe we'll get some estrogen in the White House, you know. Um, yeah, one would hope that would be enough. I, I personally don't support him. You're kind of breaking up because, you know, all of my equipment is, like, really bootleg, phones included. So I don't want to take up a lot of your time. Just wanted to call in, show you some love, um, let you know I was listening, me and my poor... Probation officer, I mean parole officer. Was was that an okay show? We're, we're on the air. It's okay. Yeah, you're doing a great job, Roro. Oh, you know, thank you. Parole early now? No. No way. Wow. Oh. Supervisor, I guess the Mexican. She's somewhere. But yeah, um, just want to call in, show you some love. Thank and, you. Um, Thanks so much, Jermaine. Doing what you do. Yeah. Hi. Great. Thank you. No, not a problem. Thank you, homie. You yeah. Know, you're, the, you're the coolest white cat in California to me, so you know I had to show up and blow up your line and show you some love, man. Oh, well, my my reaction to that is always that the, the, the bar is not set How very high. Can you go? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. They all set the bar um, pretty high. I had to remind myself. Yep. You know, I want to play oops upside one of their head, but it's okay. But yeah, man, do keep doing your thing. You know what I'm saying? Look forward to the show Monday. You yeah. know what I'm saying? All your radio audience, you know what I mean? Support Roro, get behind them. And we're going to continue, you know, what you started as far as, you know, getting the, our listeners, you know, on the Broke is Dopest show 12 to 2, by the way, on Mondays. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Um, Folks can listen uh, Transworld uh, Mondays here from 12 to 2. Yeah, because, you know, we got a section. It's a lot of funny jokes and music and other stuff, but we do stop it, slow it down. And my man, Roman Roro Reimer, does fight the power slash fuck all the racist police that kill people for no reason. Yep. Right? Yeah, that's right. That's what I'm talking about. So continue to do your things. Big ups, man. I'll talk to you later. Thanks, man. Thank you so much. Not a problem, Roro. Take care. 
Cool. Thank you so much to Jermaine Reeves for calling in. And again, I can listen to Jermaine uh, and George Bracey and myself here Mondays from noon to 2 p.m. on the show Trans World. So before we play the interview from this morning with John Neffel, we'll be playing uh, one of the songs that uh, Jermaine had mentioned, uh, a classic, of course, um, Fight the Power by Public Enemy. And we'll be back in just a little bit. Let's get this party started right. Right on. Come on. What we got to say. 
Okay, talk to me about the future of public enemy. Future of public enemy got a... folks who haven't read the the story yet um perhaps we can uh, talk a little bit about that yeah yeah definitely um so it's a, a feature length it's a, a and i am an independent journalist based in brooklyn new york uh, i'm the i'm the co-host yeah, my name is John Neffel, and I am an independent journalist based in Brooklyn, New York. Uh, I'm the I'm the co-host of a daily podcast called Radio Dispatch, and I've got a new story in the Village Voice. Awesome. So, uh, for folks who haven't read the the story yet, um, perhaps we can uh, talk a little bit about that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, so it's a, a feature length profile of two leftist activists uh, from New York, and uh, I followed them for several months as they prepared to smuggle themselves into northern Syria to join a Kurdish militia that's known as the YPG, which stands for the People's Protection Unit. Very cool. Wow. So how did you um, first get involved with them? Yeah, it's, it's funny. Uh, the story really begins back in late 2011. Uh, I was covering an action um, put on by Occupy Wall Street yes. uh, in December of uh, 2011, and uh, I was arrested. Um, even though I was a journalist, not an activist, I was arrested uh, with 16 other people. And one of them was uh, a young uh, a young activist named Guy Stewart. Um, and he and I ended up spending uh, 37 hours in jail together uh, as a result of the arrest. So, you know, we had a lot of time to talk. Yeah. And uh, we basically stayed in touch uh, over the years since then. And um, in January of this year, he sent me a, a Facebook message and said, I'm doing something that you might be interested in. So uh, basically from then on, he and I were in almost constant contact. Awesome. Very cool. Um, great. So, yeah, so I guess we can uh, talk more. I mean, we can maybe go back a little bit to Occupy. I remember because I left New York uh, in 2011 in the summertime, shortly before that happened. I remember following it, and I was in St. Louis in the fall. So I was uh, remember when that was happening there, and I do remember following online and seeing even the, the photo of you, of you with holding your glasses. 
Yeah, yeah, that one uh, that one was uh, shared pretty widely online, and it was it was strange to find myself being the subject of uh, of a what just is objectively a kind of iconic looking photograph. It was a very strange phenomenon. Yes. Yeah, something similar um, here in San Francisco. There's been there was a lot of pressure to have the police chief fired, and thankfully he has resigned. Um, and a, f- a few months ago, folks took to city hall, and of course the police ended up harassing and uh, assaulting quite a few people, um, including journalists. So I think for for some folks who were not quite uh, were a bit surprised that that would happen, but that seems, seems to been have happening for a very long time. Yeah, I mean, I, I really think that that at the at the local level, at the level of of mayors and police chiefs, um, there's been a, a serious lack of attention paid to First Amendment protections for for press, for activists, um, for assembly rights. Um, and yeah, I mean, I really think that that one of the lesser told stories over the last I don't know five, six, seven years. Is uh, is like a real, just complete lack of respect for uh, freedom of the press by yes. by mayors and police chiefs really across the country. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, have you um, encountered any more like violence um, in in your fields uh, since the Occupy movement? Uh, well, I was arrested a second time, um, also as a journalist, uh, on the one year anniversary of Occupy. Uh, but since then, there was there was uh, a year where I had an official NYPD um, press credential, which I resisted getting for a long time because I don't think that the police of any city should be the people conferring the status of journalist or not journalist. Yeah, yeah. It's like you know, it seems to me a little bit like the um, the fox watching the hen house, as they say. Um, but after the second arrest, I kind of was just like, this is, I can't keep doing my job. Uh, I keep getting kidnapped by the state. Yeah. So, so uh, I applied for uh, credentials and then they expired. And honestly, since then, I've, I've been doing less reporting on sort of demonstrations and marches and more um, stuff around uh, Guantanamo and, and refugees and things like that. So I haven't personally seen a lot of that, though I know obviously, it, like in, in Ferguson, for instance, yeah. um, a close friend of mine um, got shot by the police with rubber bullets as he was approaching them with his hands up. Uh. And he's a, he's a white guy, so you know that they were trigger happy if they were doing that. And he was saying crap. Yes. So, yeah. You know, that's just like one one of many many examples of uh, of, of recent uh, literal attacks on on press. Oh, oh, oh. So, um, so speaking of, uh, I guess Guantanamo. What's happening there, if anything at all? Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. So I was actually just there um, to get a media tour um, uh, earlier this month, just about a week and a half ago. Mm-hmm. And uh, they call it a media tour. In reality, it's about a one-day, um, highly choreographed, um, you know, very tightly controlled walkthrough of some of the facilities. Um, 
and everyone really stays on their talking points. It's it's a it's a, a, a kind of media tour in name only. Yeah. Um, and it, you know, nonetheless, it was interesting. It was my fifth time there, um, but my first time taking a tour of the, the facilities. And really, I think the big the, the big story with Guantanamo is that we can expect. Um, a, a probably two dozen transfers, give or take, in the next month and a half. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, and then after that, my strong suspicion is that transfers are going to almost totally flatline. And I think that by the end of Obama's term, there's going to be somewhere between 30 and 40 people who are still going to be held at Guantanamo. Oh. And there's really, um, I think, very little reason to think that they will either be transferred to the U.S. Um, for for continued imprisonment or whether any of those people will be detained. And I think that basically um, Obama is going to pass on a very, very small uh, population of detainees to mm. the next administration. Oh. I, I mean, I'm not surprised. It just still feels disheartening to to hear that. Um, it's also yeah. good just to get some information from like from from the inside or from as close as possible. Yeah. Well, one of the things that was that was really um, troubling about about the media visit is that. Um, various officials, basically the top commander uh, on the on the base, and then the the person who's below him, who's essentially the prison warden, um, both said that for right now there's this is according to them, so take it with a grain of salt. But yeah. they said that there's a great amount of um, optimism amongst the population of detainees or prisoners, if you like, um, yeah. because there have been so many. Uh, relatively speaking, a lot of transfers lately, and so um, I think that there is, at least according to them, there's there's optimism that people you know think they're going to get out. Many of them have been held for 12, 13, 14 years at this point um, without charge. And but where the troubling part comes in is what I was saying before is that even when you talk to commanders and, and um, the, you know the warden on, on the base, they say that, that once those transfers happen and then everything starts to slow down, you're going to very understandably get a population there that is very, very angry yeah. and in increasingly desperate and increasingly hopeless, especially given the fact that um, obviously Donald Trump is not saying he wants to close Guantanamo quite the opposite. <sighs> and Hillary Clinton is, has been very, very quiet on the topic. Of course. Um, to be honest, I would not at all be surprised if she becomes president. I could see her at some point, given... You know, given some sort of national emergency, I could see her increasing the population. There. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so I think that there's going to be a lot of of real uh, despair among people who are there if and when they're there by the time Obama leaves office. Uh, oh, that. Uh, that's. Uh. Yeah. I mean, that's my reaction to a lot of things. Uh, so yeah. it's that's, just... that's, what, that's the reaction I get when I talk to a lot of people about a lot of my stories. Yeah, yeah. It's, I think like hopeless definitely is something that comes up when one thinks about a lot of different things that have been happening in the country and in the world for a long time. And I feel like there's a lot of folks who do want to help and do recognize that the system is messed up and things are really backwards. And then 
it's very easy to feel powerless, um, which is, I think, part of the reason like journalism is so important and so necessary is to at least let folks understand what's happening. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think I think that's right. I think that that um, getting information out there is necessary uh, for social good, even if it's not in itself sufficient. You know, I I sort of think of uh, journalists. Uh, at least the kind of journalists that I that I uh, like and aspire to be. I think of them as part of a kind of complex ecosystem where you have journalists and you have lawyers and you have human rights investigators and you have activists and you have just a sort of uh, people who are all basically working towards greater levels of human rights and human dignity but all doing it in kind of separate but related ways yeah um, and, and I think that, that journalism is you know at its best at least is one key part of that yeah absolutely and it's I mean one one highlight I guess of the internet age is that folks feel like they're able to at least um, put out their their words like for instance on social media like with the elections being rigged and folks reporting that their votes haven't been counted uh, something even even like that people feeling like they have a voice and they're able to share what's happening with them where as a, you know opposed to like decades ago that might not have been the case yeah yeah I, I agree with that I mean for as for as toxic as the internet can be in so many instances there's, <laughs> yes there's also you know there's there are the occasional moments um, sometimes more than occasional moments where there really is, uh, you, you know, you can tell that the, the publishing paradigm has shifted such that, that you know, traditional gatekeepers uh, to, to media platforms don't play exactly the same outsized role that they used to. Uh, obviously, who gets to go on TV is still very, very important and very closed off to the vast majority of of people, yeah. Um, but at the very least, you know, you have platforms where people can put out uh, information and and at least get it out to the world in a way that, you know, even like ten years ago would have been very very difficult. Yeah, yeah. So that's that's a good thing for sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So maybe we can uh, just talk more about the so the story that you'd written for the for the Village Voice. Um, so for folks who are heading, uh, getting back that way. So like for folks who are heading to Syria in order to help fight uh, for the people. Uh, yeah. Well, so so what's really interesting about about the two the two people that I profiled um, is is that. Uh, they they are entering probably the most complicated conflict in the world right now, and to understand what they're doing, it's it's probably worth just um, I'll, I'll try to lay out some of the the regional some of the the regional um, political dynamics cool. just so people have a, a sort of sense of who the who the actors here are in this because it's it's very difficult to keep all of it straight. So basically. The, the the group that these two are going to support, um, sort of roughly speaking, is called the YPG, as I said, and it's a, a Kurdish militia that uh, arose in, um, really came to prominence in, in 2012, 2011-2012, uh, out of the chaos of the civil war in Syria. And the Kurds are, for people who aren't familiar, are at least 
as they refer to themselves as the largest um, ethnicity on the planet without a state. Mm. You basically have about 30 million Kurds, wow. roughly. The estimates aren't exactly correct, aren't exactly precise, but roughly 30 mm. million Kurds spread out over four countries. Um, you have Syria, Iraq, uh, Iran, and then the majority uh, of whom who are in Turkey, especially Southeast Turkey. And so, as the uh, as the Arab Spring uh, or Arab revolutions sweep the the region from from Tunisia to Egypt, and um, and uh, young activists, especially in, in Syria, are inspired and take to the streets to protest against the government uh, that's run by uh, the dictator Bashar al-Assad. Uh, the the revolution there um, quickly uh, descends into chaos as Assad, you know, opens fire on his own people. And essentially, what begins to happen is that out of the chaos that ensues as the revolution becomes militarized, um, Kurds in the north are able to establish an autonomous zone for themselves, which mm-hmm. they have long been denied by the Syrian regime. Mm-hmm. And so, as as the regime focuses more on anti-government rebels, it sort of uh, takes a lot of its troops away from the Kurds in the north, and basically just says, "Okay, the the, the Kurds can have this area in the north. Mm-hmm. Um, we're going to focus on on uh, uh, the enemies who are trying to oust us." And so okay. this area. This area in the north is called Rojava, which is the Kurdish word for west. So this is West Kurdistan. Um, if you think of the those four countries that I named before, this is this is a sort of Western version of where a hypothetical Kurdish state would be. Okay. So the the revolution in Rojava is very much um, built on a foundation of uh, anarchist thinking. Ah. Um, the, the ideological head, essentially, of the political party there um, has been in prison um, since 1999, but his political theories, the guy's name is uh, Abdullah Oshawan, his political theories are um, based very heavily on a theorist named Murray Bookchin, and essentially what it says is that um, it's, it's anti-capitalist, it's very um, pro-feminist, and uh, it's based on a kind of uh, post-state um, idea of, of local organizing, uh, and that, that uh, it's, it's, it's about keeping power localized yeah. in neighborhoods and not centralized yeah. in, a, in a state. Awesome. And so it's it's you can tell why it why this revolution would be a, a sort of natural ideological um, fit for anarchists uh, the world over, including in America. Yeah. Now, it's, it, what's interesting is that there have already been roughly between 100 and 150 Americans who have joined, who have gone to either Syria or Iraq to. Um, to fight against ISIS and to join the Kurds. What's interesting about um, every American who has gone so far, at least every reported American who has gone so far, Mm -hmm. is that they're much more likely to be conservative. They're much more likely to be um, military veterans. Uh, They're much more likely to be motivated by Christianity. Mm -hmm. And so you have this group of primarily ex-military 
um, conservatives who go over and join this anarchist militia. Huh. And and they get there, these Americans get there, and they're completely surprised. They have yeah. no idea what they're doing. They, you know, there's a quote where one of them um, says, the YPG are a bunch of commies. And he says it's in a very disparaging way, uh-huh. right? So, so you have this kind of um, strange situation where Americans um, want to get back to the battle, so to speak. Uh, they want to fight ISIS, but the available options to them, in Syria at least, is this left-wing feminist group. Um, and it largely doesn't fit with, with most of the Americans' political ideology there. What's different about about the two um uh, young young activists that I talked to, Guy and the other one, his name is Christo, mm-hmm. is that the ideology was the draw for them. Yes. You know, they, they specifically wanted to go to help their anarchist comrades. Yeah. And that really sets them apart from the other Americans. Now, there have been a small number of uh, European anarchists who have gone... Um, but large, large it, for really for the most part, the numbers have remained fairly low in terms of of leftists going to uh, to join up. Mm-hmm. And it's also important to note that that uh, Guy and Christo um, both did not plan on actually becoming soldiers. Mm-hmm. So they were both um, going to going there to create pro-Kurdish media, what they sort of refer oh. to in a, t- in a tongue-in-cheek way as propaganda. I see. So so they were interested in, like, documenting daily life, showing the struggles mm-hmm. of the revolution, the successes of the revolution. Neither of them were going there to, quote-unquote, fight ISIS. Got it. I think also separates them from the other Americans who were very explicitly going there to... Um, you know, to to try to shoot ISIS militants. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it'll be interesting. I'm very curious to to hear and to see what it's like for those for the folks who went in with just that kind of strict military ideology um, to see if they end up maybe accepting or seeing the the bright side um, of the leftist ideology. Yeah, it's it's a really really interesting question, um, and I think that one of the things that Westerners um, have to do when they when they cross the border from you, basically the border from Turkey is closed now, so everyone who's crossing over is crossing from Iraq to Syria. But when they cross over, they have to spend the first um, at least two weeks. In- what the Kurds refer to as uh, ideological training. So you learn essentially the the basics of this system of beliefs that that they call democratic confederalism. And it's, it's, again, it's very feminist. It's very communalist. Um, uh, it's, It's private property is very limited. You know, meals are done together. Living is done together. Um... And so I'm not exactly sure how many sort of like ideological converts there have been. Yeah. Um, but it's a really interesting question uh, as as far as like uh, whether whether people who have gone there have sort of um, you know maybe came from a more conservative capitalist mindset and that were uh, were were won over once they uh, you know were sort of in in the revolution. I'm not sure what the answer is to that. Yeah. 
Yeah, I'd be very, I'd be very curious. And I'd also just wonder how other folks could help contribute, like certainly not necessarily in a military sense, but like, as you're mentioning, Guy and Hristo were more on the media side, how other folks could also join to um, help the cause. Yeah, I mean, one of the things certainly that, that I think um, you hear from from groups that are um, sort of like outward facing, uh, especially to the West, is that uh, after this many years of war and, and previous decades, really of basically abandonment from the, the Assad regime, uh, a lot of the area... Um, you know, still needs to have infrastructure built up. Um, there are areas where uh, industry is, is, you know, um, could be built up. Uh, obviously, you need doctors and engineers and all things like all sorts of things like that in a in a revolution. But I think even more so than anything else, at least the people that I spoke to wanted wanted information to to get out as much as anything else. And they, you know, Kurds Kurds have been. Um, have been oppressed uh, and and um, and rendered stateless for at least since the since the first world war mm. um, and I think that in a large part what they're fighting for is visibility and autonomy and you know it's not it's not entirely clear what what westerners can sort of do to, to promote that exactly but I think that part of it at least, is is raising um, raising the profile of the project that they uh, that they are engaged in. Yeah, yeah. It's, I'm really curious to to see what happens. Yeah. Well, and so um, you know, to give this sort of uh, to give a spoiler for the for the story. Yeah. Um, essentially, one of the uh, one of the two that I uh, profile. Um, like they both they both travel to northern Iraq um, to Iraqi Kurdistan, uh, a city called Sulaimania, and um, there they they uh, get in touch with their contact who's in Syria, but um, they are uh, unable to cross the border for weeks, and so they stay at this hotel with other. Westerners who are trying to cross over, and then they are taken to the safe house temporarily, and uh, their visa is starting to run out. And one of the things that's really important to understand about both of these two is that although they are um, both very ideologically motivated, they're also motivated by more practical concerns, namely that Guy uh, has wanted to be a conflict photojournalist for his entire life. Mm-hmm. And that Christo wants to build his resume um, to make it more uh, attractive to graduate schools. And so while they're in Sulaimania in northern Iraq, um, Christo gets uh, the worst fever of his life. It puts him down for five days. And then shortly after that, as he's uh, regaining his health, he learns from his parents that he's been accepted into grad school. Ah. And so so this happens as their visa is running out. And uh, and as four Westerners who try to cross over get arrested uh, at the border. And so from so Christo is thinking to himself, you know, if I defer my acceptance, there's no guarantee that I'll ever make it to Rojava. I could lose my spot in grad school. This makes no sense. So he returns home 
and uh, it feels very uh, conflicted about it, very dispirited. You know, he's been planning this for a year, and he feels like it's a, a year of planning down the drain. And a couple of days later, right before the visa comes up, a guy is able to cross over, and he goes through training, and um, I've spoken to him a couple times uh, in the last few days, and he is still um, happy that he's there. Uh, he's, uh, you know, engaged. He's just about to launch the photo blog, um, which is called Scenes from Rojava. And, um, you know, I think that it's, it's certainly not a walk in the park, but I think that he is, uh, he's still happy that he, uh, that he went and he'll probably be there for, for several more months at least. Wow. That's great. That's really, wow. Huh. So, um, so yeah, hopefully we can, uh, still keep in touch and hear about their what's what's happening over there and i'm curious as to as they do work on the media um the information that will be made available to us yeah yeah it's it's going to be really interesting to see how uh his time there changes guy in terms of uh his outlook um you know his experience there uh obviously he right now is not uh, involved in any uh, direct combat, he's not—he's—he's he's not really at any, at least for now, um, threat of bodily harm. Yeah. Uh, you know, hopefully that remains the case, obviously for as long as he's there. But um, it, it remains a, a conflict zone. Obviously, it's a, a civil war that's displaced 12 million people, yeah. uh, 8 million internally, and 4 million who have fled the country, and so. Um, you know, over the course of his time there, I think it's going to be really interesting to see uh, the effect that it has on him politically and personally. And that's something that I'm definitely going to going to follow up on. And I'd love to uh, come back on and talk more about. Yeah, please do. I think it's also just really inspiring. Like when I saw the the article, I was just like, oh, like first of all, the words anarcho-communist, like that's always nice to see. Um, (laughs) And then also just because I I know there's so many people who have a similar ideology. And then especially here in the States, when there's been the suppression that's happened for so long um, to see folks enacting it and to, to collaborate, there's that. I guess that hope, which maybe I'm, I'm a cynic, but I'm also really hopeful and optimistic yeah. and naive in some ways, um, yeah. where I'd be like, wow, how about that happening here? And granted, like the, the United States has a whole other, we have a whole other history, a whole other things. I can't even really describe it you know, succinctly, but to, ha- to have that kind of happen here would be incredible. Yeah, well, and I think at least to, to me, what was what was really interesting about this, especially from a from a journalist uh, point of view, is that um, there are the, the left in the United States, uh, and and if you sort of broaden it out, you know, vaguely liberals more more generally, I think that um, that we can often get uh, stuck in a lot of tired conversations. That oh yeah, feel like we've been having them <laughs> for decades even before any of us were born. Yep. And and what's what's interesting to me about this story is that it's a way of talking about uh, about enacting leftist ideas 
uh, in a way that is that is completely different than a lot of the standard discussions that we have here. And I'm, I'm certainly not endorsing uh, that anyone else do what Guy and Risto did, um, certainly not without weighing the cons of it very, very uh, carefully. Sure. Because although what they did is, is not illegal under U.S. law, you know, uh, what I write in the story is that a creative prosecutor could probably find a charge if they wanted to. Uh. So I, I, I certainly wouldn't, um, and, and I'm not endorsing, you know, the fact, like, the idea that people uh, follow in the footsteps of these two. But um, I felt very lucky that I was able to shadow them yeah. while they were getting ready to do this because it was a way to talk about these ideas in a way that went beyond the sort of, you know, like is property destruction violence, which is an important conversation, but one that I just feel like exhausted by most of the time. Yes. Yeah, I hear that. I feel there's so much uh, infighting within communities that it's like, if we're going to fight amongst ourselves, how are we supposed to come together? Like, if we can't even all, you know, find consensus. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. All right. Well, um, yeah, if there's anything else you'd like to add, please feel free. Uh, I guess just if, uh, if anyone wants uh, to hear any more about this, um, we spent uh, a recent uh, show talking about it on my podcast, uh, which is called Radio Dispatch, and um, we talk regularly about uh, about my Guantanamo reporting and also about Molly's reporting. My sister and co-host, yeah. uh, Molly uh, often writes on... Uh, education policy and um, and feminism and uh, all sorts of things that, uh, that your listeners I think would be interested in and uh, you know if people want more information they should come uh, come jump over uh, and take a listen to Radio Dispatch every once in a while. Excellent, cool. We'll we'll um, post links uh, on the on our weekly review page. Awesome. Sweet. Well, thank you so much for calling in. It's also really good to hear your voice. It's been a while. Yeah, you too. I know. It's been way too long. Sweet. Well, um, take care and keep up the good work and hope to chat with you soon and give, give Molly my regards. I will. You keep up the good work too. Oh, thanks. Take care. Bye. Bye. All right. And that was John Neffel. And you can check out John's article in The Village Voice. And the title is A Hello to Arms, A New Generation of Steely-Gazed Anarcho-Communists Head Off to Syria. And you can also hear John and his sister Molly on Radio Dispatch. So we'll be playing a little bit of music and then finishing up the show with a couple more articles. So stay tuned.
You'll find a way, and that was a Switch and Sindin remix. I hadn't heard that song before. I uh, thought we needed some more, or some female energy, uh, some music with a female vocalist to uh, in place. It's been a long morning already. The show is always feels pretty, pretty intense, and today is no different. So we'll finish up the show with a story I was reading earlier about how in Cambridge they have made it uh, Indigenous Peoples Day instead of Columbus Day, which is awesome. But first, getting in a few more ugh stories, and ugh, because it's just the truth and what's been happening. So these all are connected, and again, it goes back to the presidential election and recognizing that... Uh, just what what's happening there's a few other stories that we'll try to get to next week there's always more there's always more things to talk about and also just a recognition that and in france there still are the the rioting that's been happening uh, there's a media blackout it's they're the biggest revolution in 200 years and there's an article that we posted on the weekly review webpage. that's a pretty big story that should be discussed um so uh, I guess I'll start off with that. There's a lot to get to. Um, so um, from yournewswire.com, uh, the first collaborative protest against the socialist government since Hollande came to power in 2012 kicked off on March 9th. On March 31st, nearly 400,000 people took the streets, disagreeing with the sweeping changes to labor laws, though organizers put the number at 1.2 million. So that's one uh, That's one uh, story that's been happening. <laughs> it's there's a lot happening in the world right now. Another story that hopefully we'll get to next week. This is in the Examiner on Friday from Friday of today. Today, man, this show. Woof. And that's uh, it's an op-ed. Decriminalization of sex work: a step in the right direction. So I'd like to talk more about that next week. I uh, wanted to put that out there. Uh, a positive story from Paris, um, from CityLab.com. Paris shops are make are marking their windows for the homeless. Imagine if we could do that here in San Francisco. What would that take? The 11th arrondissement. Arrondissement. Uh, many homeless residents know now know where they were to get a free meal or use the restroom and this came out on june 1st and it was written by aria bendix i'll read a little bit about this while parisians have long been sympathetic to their homeless population a recent pilot initiative in the 11th arrondissement uh, aims to offer more concrete aid founded by local resident louis xavier leca last november the Le carillon project which coincidentally shares a name with the cafe that was targeted in the devastating terrorist attacks in the city last fall has partnered with about 70 small businesses in the area to distribute stickers indicating their support of needy Parisians. The sticker, each sticker feature, feature, oh gosh, each sticker features 
an icon representing a free service from a hot meal or glass of water to a haircut or restroom access. At the local market, Le Parot de Mar- Marguerite, homeless reg... reg- so tired. Homeless residents can reheat a dish or make an emergency phone call. And at the tea room, coffee shop, chez toi ou chez moi, they, oh, I get it. Uh, they can charge cell phones, use a first aid kit, or send mail for free. In a city with a skyrocketing homeless population, this act of charity couldn't come at a better time. By connecting local shops to un- underserved residents, La Le Carillon helps to foster a much-needed sense of community. Before La Carillon officially began in November, Leca says, many shopkeepers wanted to help their homeless neighbors but didn't know how to reach out. While certain establishments were already opening their doors to the homeless by offering free coffee or restrooms, homeless residents had no way to distinguish between a place that would accept or reject them. In the last six months, La Carillon has been a welcome relief for some homeless residents who may feel embarrassed by the act of soliciting food or basic services. Still, others are reticent to participate because it's a business and you have to actually push the door to get in. A lot of homeless residents are still afraid, like I says. In an article for Vice, a local waitress recalled a man who preferred to help out at the restaurant in exchange for his food. Although Le Carillon welcomes people from all walks of life, participating shops have a right to refuse customers who may be under the influence of drugs or alcohol. If they can't behave, the shopkeepers will tell them to leave or come back later, Leca says. For the most part, the relationship between local shops and their homeless neighbors is mutual. In fact, Leca says, it's the paying customers who have been particularly encouraging of homeless clientele. Imagine that happening here in San Francisco. Hmm. Nearby, cities and neighborhoods seem to have taken an interest as well. Already, Leca has been contacted by more than 100 cities in France alone. Oh, that's a great news story! Ah, great. Uh, by September, he hopes to roll out Le Carillon in five more districts in Paris, five cities in France, and perhaps Belgium and and London. After that, he says the goal is to take the initiative overseas to America. Ah, and I think it's just ironic. Not that there aren't folks here. Obviously, there's so many folks here doing a lot of good work. It's just ironic that it's coming from uh, Europeans uh, here, and it's similar to similar, but it reminds me of the the story from earlier. The the rapist Brock Turner, um, who was stopped by two Swedes. Um, and also reminds me of a story um, back when I was in New York, and I'll finish this one up in a little bit. Uh, I was down in the <laughs> in the subway, and there were some cops harassing a homeless person. Or I don't know if he was homeless. He may have been intoxicated. I'm not sure what the situation was, but they were harassing him and were really like, you know, you can just tell when they weren't doing something that they should have been doing. And I was, it was like late at night, so there weren't that many people around, but I was looking at them very suspiciously, like, what the fuck are you doing? And there's someone else who was like also looking at the cops, and they... The cops were like, "What do you, you don't look at us?" Anyway, I forget exactly how, how it ended, but while th- us citizens were watching them, they kind of stopped doing what they were doing, and of course, the other person who was also watching was someone with a, I believe, a French accent. So it was just interesting that it was coming from someone who was not American. Um, the, the and going back to the story about how bringing it, you know, from France to America, how. Uh, I don't know. I have a lot of complex feelings about being born in this country and being a resident of this country. I don't necessarily even believe in countries and borders necessarily. Um, and then to hear that this, this, this person from France is, is interested in coming and taking these ideas to America, obviously we'd welcome them. Many of us welcome those ideas because we definitely need a way to support one another and to support our neighbors. So continuing on, until then, Le Carillon can be found where it is needed most in a city struggling to overcome the aftermath of a terrible tragedy, all while bridging the 
the divide between its wealthy and less fortunate residents. San Francisco could definitely use that, and hopefully we can have that along the way. Okay, so a few more stories. Um, so there's a few things. Uh, there's a lot of things. There's a lot of reasons why I don't support Hillary Clinton. A few things. One is that we mentioned on the show last year, or even earlier this year, there was the, the coup in, uh, and abuse in Honduras. And so if you go to commondreams.org, report details how U.S.-backed coup unleashed wave of abuses in Honduras. Survey by 54 civil society organizations and social movements presented to U.N. as alternative to official state report. This is written by Lauren McCauley. And um, before her assassination, Honduran indigenous leader uh, Berta Caceres criticized U.S. presidential hopeful Hillary Clinton as an example of international meddling. I'll read the first. Oh, there's so much to get to. I'll read the first paragraph because it's super important. The U.S.-backed Honduran coup ushered in a wave of neoliberal policies that have systematically violated the economic, cultural, and social rights of the nation's indigenous people, women, and farmers, while leaving activists and rights defenders, such as the late Berta Caceres, vulnerable to criminalization and violence. Such were the findings of a new report prepared by a coalition of 54 Honduran social movements and rights organizations and presented as an alternative to the official government report submitted to the United Nations Committee on Economic, Social, and cultural rights, which began its 58th session in Geneva on Monday. The coup d'etat in 2009 meant an imminent reversal of human rights and a serious blow to the country's institutions, states the report, which is available in Spanish. While the study does not single out international governments that supported the ouster of the country's democratically elected President Manuel Zelaya, it comes as former U.S. Secretary of State Hillary Clinton prepares to assume the role of Democratic nominee for president. Clinton's role in the coup has come under increased scrutiny since the assassination of Caqueras, a Honduran indigenous rights and environmental activist in March. The survey of of civil society and regional organizations found that the right-wing government's economic agenda has helped advance executive development projects while ignoring the rights of those who hold claim to the land. According to the report, num numerous concessions have been granted to hydro hydroelectric and mining projects in areas such as indigenous peoples, which indigenous peoples consider sacred or vital to ensure the sustenance of local communities, said global anti-hunger group Fian International, which published the study. As a result, peasant communities are increasingly faced forced are increasingly facing forced evictions, while the individuals and organizations that voice opposition are met with violence, intimidation, and criminalization, the study found, such as in the case of Caqueras, who was murdered by Honduran military officials and employees of the hydroelectric dam project that she opposed. This demonstrates that the mechanisms available in Honduras for their protection do not suffice. The overwhelming majority of the cases go unpunished, the report leads, reads. What's more, this violence has particularly targeted women, including through structural violence, such as restriction of their civil, political, economic, social, and cultural rights. The climate of fear in both the private and public sphere and the lack of accountability for human rights violations against women is the rule, not the exception, the report states. All this happens within a context of extreme poverty and imbalanced wealth distribution that leads many to go malnourished, the report continues. According to Fian, 12.1% of the Honduran population is undernourished, while a full 95% of indigenous children under 14 suffer from malnutrition. Coming full circle, the report notes that this cycle of violence and extreme poverty is driving migrants to seek asylum in the United States, where they are often met with imprisonment and deportation. Ugh. All right. 
So a couple more headlines uh, on the Ralph retort. Uh, Busted AP and Clinton caught colluding for a secret win. And this came out on June 7th. Uh, Last night, the AP made a really controversial move by announcing that Clinton is now the presumptive nominee, a move which seemingly came out of nowhere considering California's primaries are today. And this was, of course, on Tuesday. Many suspected that the move was due to a collusion between AP and the Clinton camps, with the goal being to disenfranchise Bernie supporters in California by making them think that resistance is futile. Everyone suspected the play, but nobody could prove it until people who received an official email from the Clinton camps looked at the name of the image in the email and discovered some strange things. Um, they post a few screen caps um, from the AP. Uh, and I saw some tweets about this last night, but I didn't really want to write about it until it was confirmed a bit more. Now even verified reporters at the LA Times have confirmed it. Uh, apparently, the image is dated 6-4, which was two days before the AP made the announcement, and it was the exact same tweet that ended up getting published. Furthermore, the name Secret Win goes to show you that they plan this move specifically to disenfranchise voters. It's hilarious to watch the media get exposed like this because they made a rookie mistake. I can just feel that the hashtag Burning or Bust movement growing stronger, which is only a boost for Trump. Huh. Oh, only a boon for Trump. Okay. Um, all right, so then they have a few screen caps, so you can check that out there. Another article we're not going <laughs> to, we're running low on time, uh, but wanted to get to is about about the Associated Press, of course, and about their history. So um, moving along to that, oh, there's so much. This is from The Guardian, and it's revealed how Associated Press cooperated with the Nazis. Maybe we'll read that next week, because I think that's really important just to recognize the the media and how we hear our information and what's behind it. And German historian shows how news agency retained access in the 1930s by promising not to undermine strength of Hitler regime. So again, that's on the the Guardian, and if there's time, we'll definitely read that next week, and you can check it out on our weekly review page at facebook.com slash weeklyrev. And since, of course, the the news of uh, the Hillary's false win comes from the AP as well, interesting to check out the sources of where the, the origins of the Associated Press, and oh, wow, they were supporting the Nazis. Interesting. Very interesting. sense of that what you will i won't tell you what to think but if yeah if you if you do consider it uh yeah it's hard not to be just recognize how corrupt things are okay moving along to corruption vanity fair of all places has an article report bill clinton may have encouraged donald trump to run for president um and we all know that they are their friends they've there are photos of them all together and so i get very frustrated um when folks say oh if you don't vote for clinton that means you're voting for trump and that's really ridiculous and so this article came out on august 5th and was written by uh, tina nguyen uh what if the clintons were playing a chess were playing chess against themselves and you can check out the article there as well um so just to give folks another perspective on how things how corrupt politics are folks didn't already know that all right, rounding up the show, I will finish up the article. Oh, there's another article, another thing based on Hillary. Uh, Hillary Clinton's tweet about making history shows how we erase black narratives. Meet Shirley Chisholm, and I'll definitely read that next week. Um, and that's from Where Your Voice, which is an awesome uh, independent organization. It's at Intersectional Feminist Media, and you can check it out at whereyourvoicemag.com for that article, and we'll get to that next week. So finally... Whew. Finishing up with the article I began reading earlier, because I want to end on some positive news of getting things back to the way things should be. And this comes from uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts. Cambridge votes to change Columbus Day to Indigenous Peoples Day. Uh, Counselor, Columbus was a war criminal, didn't discover anything. And this was from June 7th. 
The city council voted unanimously Monday night to rename uh, the October holiday Indigenous Peoples Day in the city. Councillor Nadim Mazen argued for the change, saying uh, Columbus did not discover anything and was a war criminal. Earlier this year, Brown University also renamed the holiday. Efforts are underway across the holiday to drop the Columbus Day name, named in honor of explorer Christopher Columbus because critics said it represents the oppression of Native Americans. The move will become official on Wednesday. All right. So, positive news stories. There's positive things happening in the world. So, I'm going to wrap up the show because I'm. that's a lot for today. Um, join us next week here, same bat time, same bat channel, mutinyradio.fm. There's plenty of great things happening here at the station. Also, some show plugs. I'll be in a show on June 17th, uh, an improv show with Marcus Sams and John Geary. And, uh, whew, yeah, I'm uh, running a bit out of breath. Um, and I will read all that info momentarily because it's good to do some show plugs as well. It's called the Two Play Improv Extravaganza, and uh, so uh, it's also with uh, April Brennan Gender and Diana Brown and uh, Casey Trujillo. And so it's called the Two Play Improv Extravaganza that is happening June 17th. And Natasha Muse will be the host, and that's happening at 8 p.m. at the 9th Street Independent Film Center. Also, uh, 8 p.m. on June 23rd, 24th, and 25th, I'm very excited to be part of a production called Queer as Fuck. I encourage everyone to come out to that. And that is at Bindlestiff, which is on 6th Street in Soma. Again, that's called Queer as Fuck. And uh, invites and all the info is on Facebook, so do check that out. Uh, yeah, thanks again to John Neffel for calling in. And again, you can check out John's article in the Village Voice and listen to Radio Dispatch. And... I think that's going to be about it. Uh, I'm going to just put on some music here and finish up the show. And ironically enough, um, my iTunes was on. I pick out usually pick out most of the music beforehand. And I had a CD here, which I'm not going to get to play this time because uh, it's on the other side of the studio. Um, so my iTunes were, happened to be on shuffle. <laughs> and the song that I happen to be playing right now is Shiny Happy People by R.E.M., which I think is just great. So why the fuck not? Here's some R.E.M., and I hope everyone has a wonderful week. And, uh, yeah, have a have a good week, and uh, be good. And we'll be back with some more positive news stories uh, next week.
Are you tired of swimming through a sea of podcasts? Are ye on a raft without a patter? Well, gather around me, sea dogs, and get aboard me pirate ship as we set sail for the seas of MutinyRadio.fm. From there, you can captain your own pirate ship as you sail through over 44 different shows for all of your listening pleasures. They've got live comedy to small business advice, LGBTQ-friendly to sports, vinyl to gutter punk. MutinyRadio.fm has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer you. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shit-faced McRat. <laughs> Good evening there, my friends here at MutinyRadio.fm. Chester Cashcock here, and giving you my love and regard as well as movies over there. And uh, I just wanted to let you guys know that any time I go swimming in my vault of rare coins and piles and piles of filthy cash, I can't help but listen to Pamtastic's Comedy Clubhouse every Friday from 8 to 10 p.m. I mean, if anyone who knows anything about comedy knows that Pamtastic's books the best of San Francisco and Beyond's Underground comics. It's a great showcase, and they have a fun time at Pamtastic's Deep in the Mission District, where you can laugh off your tushy for a mere $5 every Friday to 10 p.m. And I laugh because $5, I mean, that's what I use to wipe my tushy with. So to laugh it off for a mere $5 is indubitious. But if you can't make it to Mutiny Radio, well, don't even worry. Don't fret at all. You can simply download the podcast post-show and giggle in the comfort of anywhere, like your Aspen summer home on the mountain ridge with the kayak feeling. So all you got to do is just go to podcastics.pcrcollective.org slash comedy clubhouse, or you can listen live every Friday from 8 to 10 p.m. as your host Pam Benjamin brings you the best comedy from San Francisco and beyond the universe. And what's better than the universe? <laughs> it's a cash cock, honey. Yeah. Want to go to Burning Man, but you don't have the right goggles, costume, or attitude? Visit 20 Mission Hive at 2415 Mission Street between 20th and 21st in the heart of the Mission District. Easily accessible by BART, this collective of unique artists and vendors has eclectic handmade clothing, leatherwork, artisan jewelry, antiques, crystals, and there's even an amazing florist. Whisper pirate ship to your 